This morning's passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he has told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When Carol and I lived in Michigan, it was as close as we came to some sort of royalty. It was in western Michigan. Uh, the Queen of the Netherlands, uh, Beatrix, came. They had a tulip festival every year, and on the western side of the state, there's a large population that traces their descent back to Holland. And so, um, and so every year, royalty, not every year, but a lot of years, royalty would come. But this is when the Queen came, and it was a big to-do. They rolled out the carpet. Here, the Queen of the Netherlands coming to Holland, Michigan. It was pretty incredible as an event, and, and it was talked about for years and years. That's what we do with kings and queens and princes and uh, prime ministers and presidents. We make a big deal. We roll out the carpet for them. We, we really want to show them that we are we're thankful, we're excited about their entrance into our city or home. And, and you see some of that kind of in our passage today. Um, our, our passage today is Jesus entering Jerusalem for the for the last time in his earthly ministry. It's called Palm Sunday because they had palms that they received him with. Uh, it, it, would be a, it would be the last entrance in Jerusalem. It would end and culminate in his death on, on Good Friday. This is, it's a narrative, it's a historical event that happened. It, it's both clarifying to us in terms of it reveals who Jesus is to us in very clear ways. Now, uh, you know, Jesus throughout his ministry would try to tap down any sort of messianic expectation. He didn't want to create this temporal fanaticism. You know, when he did miracles, he would say, now, now don't, you know, don't go tell anyone this. It was trying to keep a lid on this messianic expectation. But, but here what we have is he's pulling, off, he's pulling back the curtains. He's saying, this is who I am. I'm the Messiah. So it's going to be clarifying in that way. It's also confusing. And we're going to see this in the responses that people have toward Jesus. 
kind of this, this misunderstanding of who he is and why he has come. So we're going to see both. The misunderstanding will lead to disappointment, despair, and ultimately to judgment. But for those who see Christ, there is great hope and there is excitement in this coming. So here's what we'll do. We'll look at kind of in two buckets. The first one is the revelation of the king. Here's how, here's how he is going to reveal himself. He is declaring to us who, see, who he sees himself to be. And then we're going to see the response to this king. How do we respond to this king? We see right, we see wrong, we see a mixed response. So first, the revelation of the king. Look with me back at 28 to 35. Uh, this is the scene where Jesus is sending his disciples in. Uh, he said he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. We're on entering it. You'll find a colt, which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? They're going to say this, the Lord has need of it. So they went away. It was just as it had been told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying it? They said the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. Throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So the first thing we see about this revelation of Christ, this exposure, this divine exposure, is that he sees himself as the promised king. That is the Messiah. This is how Jesus is, is bringing himself out to be. Now, what do we make of all this kind of stuff? Is this a, a, a miraculous event where Jesus kind of knew what was happening and the disciples didn't, and so he, he kind of was giving this miracle of divine omniscience? I, I don't, it could be. It could be. I don't think it is. I think Jesus is carefully crafting an entrance into Jerusalem so that the people would see that he sees himself as, I am the king, I am the Messiah coming. The reason I say that was because in Matthew's gospel, we find out that it says that it was to fulfill all that the prophet Zechariah had spoken. Luke doesn't quote Zechariah. The other gospel writers do. And in Zechariah, we read these words, Say to the daughter, this is a prophecy 500 plus years before, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, so Jesus is letting the people know, by riding this colt, by riding this donkey, he is announcing to the people, I am the coming king, as promised by God in Zechariah. That's the clear announcement he's making. But I want you to see something else in this. He sees himself as a promised king. He's going to carry it out. Do you realize that Jesus is arranging this? He's organizing it. He knows what's before him. He knows the hostility of the religious leaders. He knows what this means for him. But he, in sovereign courage, marches forward, carrying out the very plan that will end in his own death. You know, just in chapter 18, just one chapter before the one that we read, we hear these words. Jesus, taking the twelve, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. Jesus is in clear control of He knows everything that's going to happen. And he's walking right into it. Jesus himself is setting in motion the plan of his own death. It's incredible. What a, he's undaunted in courage. Why? Well, he knows he is the promised king. He knows that the promises of God that rest upon him. You can trust him. You can follow this kind of courage and leadership. 
He knows that all the promises of God for the restoration of all things and all people rest on his faithfulness in laying down his life. And so he walks it out to perfection. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. In other words, all that God promises to do in terms of his redemptive plan sit on the shoulders of Christ and need him to be perfectly faithful and obedient, which we see he is. You can trust him. I mean, we respect people that look at death straight in the face and they walk with courage, but here Jesus is arranging his own death for the glory of God and for the salvation of you and I. Jesus is a leader you can trust. You can follow him. But he's not just the promised king that we see here. He's also the humble king. Look with me in 35 and 36. It says, And they brought it, or the colt, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, so here Jesus is kind of coming in, just reference that Zechariah passage. He will be humble and mounted on a colt. See, here we see the humility of Jesus' kingship. He's not just the promised king, but here you see he's the humble king. He's riding a little donkey is what he's doing. Now, now listen, it, it is true David rode a donkey, uh, that a donkey was an animal of choice for royalty in David and Solomon's time. But after Solomon, they would ride horses. The kings of Israel left the donkeys in the dust. They would ride horses. Why? Horses are bold. They're big. The muscles are flexing. They're armored for battle. They just declare power and prominence and position. You come into a room, you come into a city on a horse. That's the way generals did it. That's the way kings did it. Gets the attention of the people. This is the kind of king I am. And yet he rides a donkey. And it gets worse. It's not just an unimpressive animal. Uh, but the donkeys of the east are, by stature, smaller than the donkeys of the west. So, so it's, it's almost comical. It's like he, the donkey should be, if a grown man sat on this kind of donkey, he'd have to lift his feet so they wouldn't drag along the ground. It's like better at a petting zoo. One author said you can put a hobbit on it, but don't put a human on it. it it's terribly small and unimpressive. And not only that, he didn't even own it. He borrowed it. It's a picture of the humility of Christ. But it really, just, it really just goes to what we'll see at the end of the week. A massive humility in the Son of God laying down His life, naked, forsaken of God, bearing a divine curse over sin, our guilt, our shame, and dying for us to reconcile us to God. That, 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 is, the, that is the ultimate glory down to infinite condescension. That's what it is. It's massive. You don't see any kind of king in our experience like this. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a totally different type of king. I mean, I mean, just think about it for a minute with Jesus. Think about what he did. So when you scan the nature of his ministry in the Gospels, he's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He gives speech to the mute. He gives uh, cleansing to the sick. He frees the demonized. 
He feeds thousands. He calms the sea, raises the dead. He has quite a resume of glorious power. But then go on and think about the claims that he makes. Think about the claims that you never hear come out of the mouth of another human. I am the light of the world. If someone does that, you get ready to kind of lock them up. I'm the salt of the earth. I and the Father are one. I'm the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was born, I am. He's saying incredible things. He's making, he's making incredible claims. And yet he, he has prostitutes as his friends. He eats with tax collectors. He holds children. He stops and cares for the, the leper and the dirty and the disenfranchised. He has more friends on the lowest scale of society than probably any of us do. You see this infinite glory and yet this infinite comprehension or condescension all in the same. I mean, you can, you can honor that, couldn't you? I mean, don't you admire him? Aren't you overwhelmed? You know, when we have stars that become celebrities, maybe they're athletes that get these you know, billion-dollar contracts, and, and they become almost full of themselves. They begin waxing eloquent on topics of which they have little, perhaps little knowledge or experience. You see it in politicians. You see when humans rise in power and glory, you know, they start dressing differently, they start talking differently, they start hanging out with different people, they start living differently. But not so with Jesus. You know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon uh, from Revelation 5, which I'll be preaching on next week. It's called The uh, Excellencies of Christ. He's excellent. And Jonathan Edwards was, of course, a preacher, probably the greatest theologian American soil has produced, 18th century. And uh, in this sermon, if you read through it, he has, of course, these Puritan sermons are classic. They're just riddled with all kinds of points and subpoints and sub subpoints. But in terms of his points that are listed, here are some of his points. And he's talking about the divine excellencies, the, as he says, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies of Christ. Diverse being ultimate glory and yet ultimate condescension. So here are his subtitles to his sermon. Christ has infinite highness and infinite condescension. Infinite justice and yet infinite grace. Infinite glory and lowest humility. Infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. Deepest reverence towards God and yet equality with God. Infinite worthiness of good and the greatest patience under the suffering of evil. An exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and yet perfect resignation. Self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. Do you see what he's saying? That Christ, being fully glorious, is also absolutely humble. You don't see this kind of leadership in anyone. Never has history produced someone of such glory and yet such humility and kindness. You can honor him with your life. You can admire him forever. So Jesus, when he reveals himself, he's the promised king sent from God, but he's also a humble king. He's humble. And not just humble, he's a saving king. And you see this in 37 and 38, if you look at those verses, 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had been saying, they had been seeing. And they were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So Jesus isn't just saying I'm the promised king and I am a, a humble king with a humble kingdom, but I'm also here to save. I'm, I'm here to deliver. You, you see that in the voice of the people, right? The people are beginning to acclaim or accord him as a king. Now, they had seen these miracles that he had done. They were excited about the political potential of Jesus as our king. You know, you think about just the week before, as recorded in John 11 and 12, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had given Bartimaeus sight. Now, remember, a lot of the people coming with Jesus were these followers making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Galilee. They had seen many of the miracles that he had done. Can you not imagine how your hopes might be pinned on this kind of coming king? You know, it says in John chapter 6, uh, after he fed the 4,000, it, it says that the people went to take him to make him king. Well, who do you want as a political leader? He can feed everybody? You think stimulus checks are nice? He can feed everybody? He can heal everybody? He can do everything. That's the one you want in office. That, that's what they're thinking. And, and you notice that because they say, they quote Psalm 118, 26. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But I want you to know that if you go back to that verse, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they interpret Jesus as the one. He's the king. He's coming. Blessed is the king who comes. And notice they continue their praise. They say, peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest What's remarkable about that is it is incredibly similar to what the angels said to the shepherds when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom he, am, he is well pleased. I mean, it's almost like they got it. Did they get it? Do you think they understood it? I don't think so. I don't think they did. I think it was mixed. I think they saw Jesus coming as a national hero. They saw him coming to change the socio-political environment. They're going to throw Rome off. They're going to restore Israel. The reason I say that is because the palm branches. The palm branches, the palm was a symbol of the Maccabean revolt of 200 years prior. It was a symbol of revolution and, and freeing Israel from its captives. I think they saw in Christ a political, a military, a cultural Messiah to make their lives better. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came not to bring socio-political deliverance, but spiritual deliverance. He came to bear sin. He came to reconcile us to God. He, he came to make us right with God. He didn't come to set things right just yet. He came to make us right. That is righteous or justified before God. That's why he came. He came to save us, and they missed that. See, Jesus knows better what our needs are. We think what our needs are, we want deliverance. Deliverance on a physical level, on a political level. We want deliverance on a financial level. We want deliverance on a relational level. And those may be legitimate needs that you have, but the fundamental need that Jesus has come to secure and what we often fail to see is that we have a need to get right with God. 
we don't feel that way. We don't, press, we don't feel pressed every day you wake up. You may not always be burdened by guilt and shame. Now, if you stop and you think about your life and standing before God one day, all of a sudden your legs might begin to shake a little. But we don't usually give that long to reflective thought. But Jesus knows. He's one that you can love. He's one that you can worship because he's come to bring peace. That's why he says at the end, you don't know what would make peace. You know, peace is this wholeness. It's an integrity of soul. It, it, peace is a shalom. There's no dissonance in your soul. You, you know, many of us feel that dissonance. You know, does he love me? Does he not? I, I'm a nice person. I'm not. You know, we struggle with even accepting who we are. We, <clears throat> many of us don't have an actual peace in our life. And yet Jesus has come to bring an actual peace, not just between God and us. We know that from Romans 5, that we've been justified through faith and therefore we have peace with God in Christ. But he's also come to make peace with one another. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace, not just with God, he has made peace with God, but he's also destroyed the dividing wall of hostility that separates us from one from another. Uh, so, so do you have this peace? I mean, do you have that sense and that awareness that all is right between God and I? That doesn't mean do you have this perfection. We fail, but we repent and we remind ourselves of what he has done. And peace comes rushing back into our souls. He came to save us, to bring peace between us and God. So he, he's come as a promised king, he's come as a humble king, he has come as a saving king. But then you see in 41 to 44, he's come as a tender king. Now Luke is the only gospel writer that records this scene. Look at it with me in 41 and 42, he says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. So here you see the scene. So he comes, the Mount of Olivet. It's higher. You go down to the Kidron Valley, and then you begin to ascend towards Jerusalem. So it's as he is ascending, he sees the city, he begins to weep. Now listen, he's not weeping like he wept in John 11 with Lazarus. It's a different Greek word. It, it means to weep quietly. Here he's wailing. It's that kind of crying that everybody around you hears. It, it's that kind of wailing, sobbing, tears. He knows they're going to reject him. He knows that they're going to. He doesn't get angry. Notice when you feel rejected. Uh, generally, what do we do? Our back bows up, or we don't like them, and we point out things that we, don't, we find weak about them. He doesn't do that. He weeps over what they're losing. That the day of their visitation, God has come to save, and they missed it. Really, in some ways, this is the day of your visitation. You're hearing that you're not judged. God hasn't brought judgment. Remember this, aren't we thankful for that? He will bring judgment, as we're going to see in a minute. Jerusalem was judged. You know, look with me at 43 and 44. It says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. These tears of Jesus aren't just tears of sadness. They're tears of tragedy. Because he knows what's going to fall them. This, this happened, 70 AD. The Roman general Titus 
came in with thousands of Roman soldiers and they laid siege to the city and left it in rubble. Caesar ordered that because Jerusalem was so glorious and so mighty, and it would, look, it would make Rome look so glorious for being the victor over it, he said, leave the towers in place. And that way they could see how glorious the city, but how more glorious is Rome that destroyed the city. This is the kind of arrogance of humanity. But Jesus says that judgment will come and judgment fell because they rejected the Son of God. They rejected Christ. Now Luke doesn't seem to paint that these people had some sort of innocent ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't see the point. Wow, I didn't get the clues. It, there's more of a willful rejection. They wanted a king, there's no doubt. But they didn't want that type of king. They didn't want a savior type of king that would reconcile to God, making peace through his own blood. They wanted deliverance. They wanted it now. And they were judged. They missed the day of visitation. This is the day of your visitation. And you say, well, does that mean he's going to destroy America? No, not necessarily. I hope you realize that throughout the course of biblical history, God brings judgments, but not all the time. We don't have floods every five years. There's one flood, though. It's clear he does judge. We saw it. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about their giving, they were judged. Read it in Acts 5. Boom, they just died. Does that happen every week at churches across America? No. It, but it did. It did. And you know that it, it can. What he's saying here is to reject the Son of God who has come with such tenderness will put you. Now, I don't think fear is a good converter. I, I don't like to, I, I don't think scaring people about judgment brings people into the kingdom of God. I, I just want to wake us to realities that will be true one day when we stand before him. I, I think only God can open up your eyes to the glory of Christ. But, but these times of kind of alerting you to realities that you don't see in your day-to-day -day lives, I think they have an instructional effect on your life. You can run to Christ as a tender savior. You know, when I, when I talk to people, they often forget about this part of his messiahship, that he's tender, that he's gentle and he's kind. You know, we, we think of, you know, when we feel guilty or let's say our lives are just a mess or you're struggling with some ongoing sin that you keep trying to put to death and you can't do it or you're discouraged over the brokenness of this world and we don't want to go to, we don't want to run to Christ in the ugliness of our repeated sin or some secret sin that we keep falling into. We don't want to go to him. We want to clean ourselves up and then somehow we feel more justified to go to him. This is inviting you to not do that, to take all your mess and go to him. That shows that you see him as the Savior. Otherwise, you're a partial savior and trying to clean yourself up. And then, no, he is inviting. He is weeping over those who are not coming to him. It's a clear invitation. You know, in Isaiah 42, it, it's a picture. God is speaking in Isaiah 42, and he's speaking about the Messiah to come. And he says these words: "Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice." To the nations, he will judge all the nations. He says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. 
In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Notice that. A, a bruised reed he will not break. A, a, a reed that's already been damaged. He won't break it. He's so gentle. A smoldering wick. You know, when the wick gets very, very low with material that's burning, you can walk by it and extinguish it. He won't. He's too gentle for that. You can run to him. Let me implore you. His kind of kingship is something we've never seen. It's been promised by God. He's the only one. There'll be no further king that will come to deliver. There'll be no president. There'll be no prime minister. There'll be no human leader that will do what he has done. He's come humbly. He, he, he can stoop to the lowest to meet you. He will come to save, to reconcile us to God first. He will be the judge of all, no doubt, and he'll bring justice. He won't falter, he won't, he won't be discouraged, and he won't fail. It may not be now, but it will be in the consummation of all things. And he's tender. You can approach him. He came in triumph. He did. But there was tragedy as well. And the tragedy is how people responded to it. Let's go back through the text briefly. Notice how people responded. Some responded just in disbelief. You know, look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees command Jesus. Isn't this incredible? The king is coming. They command him to rebuke the people for giving him praise. They didn't believe him. They didn't think he was the Messiah. He didn't fit their paradigm of what a Messiah is. And so rebuke the people. And of course, Jesus refused to. They didn't believe him. Now, I want you to see something here. They didn't believe him because, not because he didn't evidence Messianic signs and words. They didn't believe him because it says in John 11 that they feared the whole world was going to him. What I want you to see is that disbelief is never purely evidential. It, disbelief is never purely evidential. It, 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 it's moral, it's volitional, it's emotional. We are not computers, we're not machines that receive data points and then spit out some belief system. Our, our belief, we're complex people. Our, our belief systems are impacted by, by what we've gone through, how we've been raised, our background. Our All these things come into why we believe what we believe and why we choose not to believe what we choose not to believe. Make no mistake about it. You know, when people say, no, there's not enough evidence to believe, that's just not true. It's never purely evidential. It's always including a moral aspect. And that's what you see in these Pharisees. They were jealous of him. They were scared of him. It wasn't simply that he didn't muster up enough evidence to believe. So we see disbelief. And again, you have the warning here. Those who disbelieve will face, they will face God. They will face judgment. But then secondly, notice the other group. It was more of an ambivalence, right? You have the crowds. They do accord him to be king. They do call him king. They do. But their hopes on his kingship were not what he came to do. As I said, it was more political. It was more cultural. That's where their hopes were. And when he didn't provide it, then they just kind of evaporated. Now, this is a warning for us here. We can wrap Jesus around the flag. We can go very nationalistic with our faith. It's a dangerous thing to see Christ and pin upon him the national or the political hopes that you have. That's not what he is for. That's co-opting Christ 
to advance whatever you think is a moral majority or moral America. That's not what he's come to do. You can rest assured he will bring a justice over which we will rejoice. But to, to mix and match political and personal and cultural desires, it's fine to desire these things, but to put them on Jesus and let him be the horse pulling the wagon, it's a dangerous thing. Dangerous thing. Jesus has come as king to be obeyed, not to be co-opted. You and I don't get to determine who Jesus is based upon what we think. So many people are so quick and so positive to just say, well, I think Jesus is like this and this and this and this. Well, Jesus sets the parameters for who we see that he is. Love it, Wolf. I loved what one author said. He said, it's like Jesus came into town and said, listen, you can crown me or you can kill me, but don't like me. Don't just like me. Just don't take me as some good moralistic teacher. Don't just see me as some sort of guy that can help society along. He's coming as the king of the world, which means for us, if you're here as a Christian, do you see him as king? I mean, I mean, does his kingship, his kingship must exert its authority over your life, not just on Sunday morning, or not just when you're reading the scriptures. He exerts his fear over your workplace. That you are living, not, not with his word as suggestions to you, but he is the king. He is the king of all, of all creation. So we, so we follow him at work, in our homes, in our community, and yes, of course, in the church. But this bifurcation of our life, this is my spiritual side, this is my, the rest of my life, that doesn't work with kingdoms and kings. He is the true king over all things. We might want to repent of how we've seen him, how we've put our hopes on him maybe for political and cultural changes. And that's fine to desire these things. Uh, but are we submitting to him as king? And then the last group we see, you have the antagonist, you have the ambivalent, but then you have those who adore. Now, I'm going to go to a group in this narrative that you probably aren't looking for. I'm going to go to the rocks. The, the rocks seem to be our instructors for how we actually worship this king. He says to the Pharisees, if I shut the crowds up, then the rocks will cry out. Isn't that amazing? Jesus chooses the rocks. I mean, the rocks, the most inanimate aspect of his creation, will yet praise God. You know in Romans 8 right now, you do know that all creation is groaning under the curse, waiting to be released. You know that it says in Isaiah 55 and Psalm 147, it says that the the trees will clap for joy. The mountains and the valleys and the streams will sing for joy. The skies will proclaim the handiwork of God. All of creation will worship. They become our teachers, the rocks. How do we respond to this kind of historical narrative? We respond with worship. For those of you who know, you, you worship him. You, you, your hearts begin to increase in affections for him. You know, Charles Spurgeon, preaching in this text, he says, how can we be cold in his presence? Should we not bubble up with white-hot heat? This is God incarnate coming to save a people for himself. God himself, in full glory, enfleshed for us. You know, John Owen, probably one of the greatest English theologians, 17th century 
in his book, The Glory of Christ, he wrote these words. He says, it is as the representative of God that the Lord Christ is exceedingly glorious. Now he's drawing that, I think, from Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 4, where Jesus is the exact representation of the very glory of God. So what we're to understand is that when we see the face of Christ, we see the very glory of God. And in heaven we'll forever see the face of Christ and we'll see the glory of God in Christ. So he says... It is as the representative of God that the Lord Christ is exceedingly glorious. Those who cannot see his glory by faith do not know him. Boy, that's bold. To not see the glory of God in the face of Christ as the exact representation, as God himself coming to save, and to turn away from that face with no affections for him is to not know him. And if you're thinking right now, I don't have affections, I think we need to start asking. Let us see your glory. Show me your glory. I mean, Jesus Christ has, this was the day of visitation. The Lord visited, and they were not moved. The rocks were shaking, but the people were not. We need to be those who shake. We need to learn from them. You know, Martin Heidegger was a German philosopher early part of the 20th century, and he gave this talk in 1955 on the reflective mind. And uh, he was arguing this point, that given our age of technological just increase and, and our calculating age of measuring and, and, and uh, developing and growing in technology, he goes, we've lost a fundamental ability of humanity, which is to reflect, to ponder, to consider, to think deeply on these kind of issues. We need to gain that. I want to encourage you to reflect on these truths, that Christ has come. He has revealed himself. He chose a, a point in time, in the fullness of time, God sent a son, born of a woman, born under the law to, to redeem and give full rights to sons and daughters who have faith. So I want you to reflect on Christ as the promised king, the humble king, as the saving king, and as a tender king. Those of you who are so easily overwhelmed by your guilt and shame, he's tender for you. How will we respond? Let's just assume for a minute, this is the day of your visitation. What will you do? Are you, are you, are you combative to this presentation? Are you ambivalent and say, well, it's nice and thanks, appreciate it? Or does it lead you to have your souls begin to bubble up that Christ, the face of God in the flesh to save us, does it not lead us to adoration? And I pray for those of you who don't see the face of, that you don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray that God would have mercy. Have mercy on you. Because there will be a day. And, and this day is preparing us for it. Let's take a moment and ask God to help us reflect in redemptive ways on this truth. And then I'll pray for us.